welcome back ladies and gentlemen to the Ocean Bunker podcast. Uh, this is season 4 episode 12, our uh, season 4 finale and also our, um, I suppose we call it the Christmas special. Um, we're going to be discussing uh, the US's Christmas present to Ukraine tonight among other things and we're joined this evening by a host of guests um, from the OSINT community um, including analyst Mick. Uh, Austin, who, as many of you will be aware, will be joining us from next season as an official host of the podcast. Uh, we're joined again by Cassis Belly, who's uh, featured a number of times, and also by Granger, who uh, I don't think has been a guest as of yet, but um, welcome aboard, guys. Yeah, and I, I think, Granger, if you just want to real, really quickly introduce yourself, as I think you're the only person who hasn't been introduced on the podcast yet. Yeah, I've been uh, new here, so or good evening, or basically good morning from the Philippines. So I'm Granger, and the naval nerd when it comes to um, uh, Twitter, it, one of the naval nerds basically. So I was part of um the um basically the ones that have been watching Russia's naval movements before and during the war, but uh until now I'm lying down because busy busy with real time job so yeah i'm still monitoring for now yeah no you're 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 the resident terrifier of plan planners yeah because i'm literally just um watching them menacingly from across the sea <laughs> <laughs> the the i'll be watching you yeah so, oh man, we, we have a lot to talk about uh, this week. I think we should probably just launch into the latest U.S. aid package, uh, which has just been released in actual numbers and turns out was not just Patriots, but also more HIMARS ammunition, as always. Um, some, some other interesting stuff as well. A lot of, lot of mortar rounds, about, about uh, I think, 10,120 millimeter mortar rounds. And mm. as, as we've seen over the past few weeks, the, the types of mortar rounds may be varied as well. Um, I think we also have more harms. Uh, quote, precision aerial munitions, which appear to be at this point JDAM kits. Um, uh, additional tactical secure communication systems, which have been important. Um, and then I think the key thing of this package, actually, that's probably going to get passed on, um, in most coverage is the USAI uh, uh, DOD sort of conglomerating remaining amu or Warsaw Pact era ammunition um, and giving it to Ukraine, including 45,000 122 millimeter artillery rounds, 20,000 122 millimeter artillery rounds, 50,000 grad rockets, and 100,000 rounds of 125 millimeter tank ammunition, um, which I, I think we've been sort of ballparking what that looks like versus the Ukrainian current Ukrainian burn rate of ammunition. And that is, I mean, at this point, a couple of months of, of ammunition for, for various parts of the front, um, which I think is now making up for some of, or the, the lack of ammunition captured in the past couple of months. Yeah. I would say I look at this package in two different sectors, the first being sort of sustainment and the second being, I haven't really come up with a word for it. It feels like mission creep, but I guess it's more technology creep. Um, we're on the sustainment front. We're seeing, you know, like you, uh, like technical said, sort of that conglomeration of Warsaw Pact munitions that 
you know, most analysts have been saying, you know, needs to continue to happen. And we've seen sort of uh, the Western Alliance do so in a somewhat piecemeal manner. But that's going to be very critical moving into the winter months if the Ukrainians decide to continue their offensive actions and they continue the sort of munition burn rate we've seen so far. On the uh, second sector with this sort of uh, technology creep, we're seeing, you know, the United States, for one, starting to uh, put forth technology that previously it was very apprehensive about, whether that's precision guided munitions, whether that's Patriot systems. Um, the question for me sort of moving forward is now that we've sort of breached the Patriot barrier, what does that look like for other systems that previously have been off the table, such as aircraft or, you know, further munitions that will be um, bolted on to MiG-29s? And, you know, what does this look like two, three months from now? Yeah, I think there definitely is sort of an established established pattern this moment of bolting on NATO equipment to Ukrainian Air Force assets, um, which, I mean, if we're not going to give them F-16s at this point, then giving their existing platforms the capability to conduct those strikes or I, I think is the next best thing. Um, uh, you know, giving MiG-29s the capability to conduct sea admissions, and it looks like the Ukrainians have been pretty effective in menacing existing uh, Russian air defense assets near the front with their newly acquired harms um, launched from MiG-29s. Um, I I think that it's definitely a, a huge sort of asset for them to have, especially as they move into acquiring sort of precision-guided munitions. Um you know, it's it's definitely potential. There There is a potential that we could see more munitions being sort of thrown on, especially as the U.S. continues to test and figures out, you know, what they can add um, to, to sort of supplement uh, existing Ukrainian capabilities. And I think we'll continue to see that grow. I'm sorry, how many of you are in here and I'm not getting a comment on that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, I think I think we're already in alignment there. Um, it, I mean, exactly what you said. Uh, we're going to continue bolting on, you know, plat, uh, weapons platforms to, you know, existing Ukrainian aircraft until, you know, should, I guess, we get to the point where we start seeing Western aircraft uh, flying in Ukraine under the Ukrainian roundel. Um, yeah. So. Mm. All right, so so at what point do you think we're going to manage to bolt an AMRAM onto a MiG-29? You know, I was I had that in the back of my head, and I'm like, at what point do we all sort of like googly eye when we see an AMRAM knock down a T-95? Um, <laughs> but uh, it, I don't know. I guess I guess that's that's a win question, not an if. I mean, we've we've already seen the harms. We've already we're seeing the JDAM kits going over now. I, I don't really see, you know, AMRAMs as being this sort of like, number one, like a technology that's brand new. And number two, being something that um, the U.S. in particular would be like, oh, that's a that's a that's a bridge too far right there. We can't let uh, their planes shoot down Russian planes. Like, how could we do that? I mean, yeah, I mean, the, oh, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, one part of the uh, del deliveries of munitions is, I think, the different angles of attack, as we have seen with the HIMARS systems, they have been quite effective for some time, but then it seems that the Russians adapted to it as we know that they're, they're quite incompetent in, in some areas, but they still adapt to some point. And now with the harms, I think they may also be slowly adapting to that. So if, they, if the Ukrainians want to continue to exploit uh, further angles, I think the 
the Americans and also other NATO allies have to look into other capabilities for supply. Yeah, I also think the the side effect of HIMARS was kind of the adapt-or-die mentality of basically if if there was a high-value Russian target within, say, 40 miles of the front line, it, it was a target um and and could be hit and and the ukrainians kind of methodically went through those larger russian assets in that range um and the russians kind of just moved back their assets from from being that close to the front which you know has caused them logistic issues almost certainly um not ha- not being able to stockpile artillery ammunition or or other assets closer to where they're actually firing from is probably straining their their capabilities especially as we've seen since day 1 of the war their transport capabilities are um lacking at best um and so i i i think that that's a that's a huge advantage um that the ukrainians have and and then of course they've they've started to utilize HIMARS to to attack other targets, especially during uh, uh, important strategic strongholds and, and, and other attacks. Um, so I, I definitely the Russians have adapted to HIMARS being present on the battlefield. Um, and I'm I'm sure new assets as they continue to arrive will sort of evolve the battle space in a way that Russia isn't expecting. Um, and as we see those sort of enter the battle space the the russians will will have to deal with it um the the speed of which is is definitely in question um okay go on (laughs) okay so speaking of um bolting western staff on um migs and sukhoi aircraft of the ukrainian air force uh we uh in my like opinion and my thinking I think someone behind the U.S. has been um, helping uh, Ukraine bolt them to their aircraft because uh, you got to remember that um, there is system incompatibility between uh, Western munitions and Eastern systems within those aircraft. And the only, uh, what let's say, competent country that has enough experience with mix and matching Western equipment with Eastern equipment is, well, Israel. So in my uh, far distant idea, the only support that maybe um, the country or Israel has uh, provided, since in theory they couldn't provide overt support because uh, with, the, with the connections with Russia in the Syrian uh, field, so basically, their support is, uh, in my idea, is basically on the support of mounting Western munitions on Eastern um, aircraft because they have experience. Like the Israeli metal industrial complex is basically um, one of the only MICs that are proficient enough to um, merge both East and West technologies and work them seamlessly. So, yeah, that's... Uh, that's an idea off the top of my head that is a possibility that they might have some assistance. Yeah, that's actually, that's that's super interesting because I know Israel is currently dealing right now with sort of the proposition that Iran is acquiring combat experience in Russia 
or or through Russia, they're they have advisors, or or it's fairly well known that they have advisors on the ground assisting Russia, at least in Russia, um, uh, uh, with their loitering munitions and and potentially at some point ballistic missiles. And so I I think there may be the Israeli interest in sort of blunting that as much as possible. Um, especially now that Iran may be able to test their ballistic missiles against, you know, assets like Patriot um, in in Ukraine, um, and and you know they're they're loitering munitions against Patriot, which the the Israelis may be somewhat concerned about and may sort of drive them to increase their not overt assistance, but but definitely sort of areas of assistance. One thing I would like to add to Jane's point. Uh, Israel isn't the only country who uh, adapted NATO munitions to Eastern Bloc aircraft, like for example Germany. Uh, we received uh, a lot of the materials from the East German Army, which I think also included MiG-21s and MiG-29s, sorry. And I think we bolted on a couple of NATO munitions, uh, but we later sold them onto Poland, which I think also do that, so both Poland and Germany should have some knowledge and capability. Yeah. Uh, but at least with respect to Germany, we have a uh, general problem with bleeding uh, <laughs> knowledge from our armed forces. So it's, it's probably unfortunately gone here, but I think the Poles still retain that capability and they're quite close and do want to have Ukraine. So I think that yeah. definitely Poles running around. Well, so I know... <laughs> There, there, I, there are a bunch of various upgrade programs. I know even Romania has experimented or or did finally with their implementation of the Lancer MiG twenty one, added in uh, you know helmet mounted uh, uh, queuing systems, uh, Israeli radar systems, the Python three. Um, I know Poland and Germany have worked together. Um, on various upgrade systems to the MiG-29. Uh, I think the it's the... What's the one in the German service? The MiG-29GT, um, which received... Uh, I would have to... <laughs> this would require more research because a lot of different, you know, parties have done significant, you know, upgrades to their systems. The I know the MiG-29G, which was the East German... It was an East German MiG-29U and UB which was upgraded to NATO standards um, uh, uh, in, I believe, the 90s. Um, so there's there's a lot of them that sort of got these various different upgrades with systems from various different partment, you know, partners. Um, and a lot of places have sort of experimented, especially post-collapse of the Soviet Union, with those upgrades to, to MiG-29s. Just... I, all the ones that I can think of right now are, are MiG-29 GT, MiG-29 AS, MiG-29 Sniper. Um, yeah, there's 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 a lot of these different options, and and I'm sure that sort of they're building on those bases from different partners. Uh, also, besides all of that, I wanted to uh, like uh, ask you what do you think, like why the U.S. just sent this huge uh, package to the Ukraine like do they uh, are they expecting uh, something coming soon from the Russian side like uh, maybe in a few months or something or what do you what do you think about it I would say this is possibly a response to 
individual needs that sort of collated into like one big blob of of requirements that could be filled by this package. Um, I know there was the rumors of Iranian ballistic missiles um, that sort of would prompt the need for an anti-ballistic missile system, particularly in the Kiev area. Um, I think that there's also sort of there was the need for ammunition in that the Ukrainians haven't been able to uh, receive some donations from Russia in a bit. Um, so that's that that I believe was particularly important to to get those um, USAI ammunition donations. Um, I think that right now it's sort of a critical point in the war where you have the Russians pushing on Bakhmut and the Ukrainians have been fairly consistently able, especially over the past week during the most heavy fighting where the Russians made a serious attempt at pushing into the city, the Ukrainians were able to repulse them. And I, I think that's been, um, that's been essential, um, to, to sort of keeping their, their front in the East there together. Um, and I, I think this sort of, this package responds to a lot of needs they have currently on the ground. Um, it's a lot of varying needs from varying threats, but sort of that's where it's gone. anyone anyone else have any ideas on sort of why this packet or a package of this size might be coming right now i think it's fair to say the packages we've seen in the last couple of months have been sort of growing and, and escalating in size anyway so a, a package of this size probably wasn't too unexpected but as you say it's more the contents of the package this time round that are of note um, as we said the jdam kits and the Patriot missiles, um, obviously not having been kit before, we could obviously sort of try and extrapolate and guess at what a, a package of, of, of the next size up, so to speak, in the new year could look like. And as you say, how long before other items of kit, like the Patriot that were previously off the table, are on the table and, and end up getting delivered? Um, We've obviously seen a number of um, European countries have been only too happy to supply certain items of kit, vehicles, for example, that the Americans have been very, very cagey around the idea of delivering. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have any f further thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I would say that this package is sort of indicative that, and I think we're going to see packages moving forward. I think we're we're always going to see the sustainment aspect, right? We're always going to see ammunition, depending upon burn rate, depending upon, you know, which battles are being waged. But in regards to the introduction of new technology, I think we've reached a point where um, the Western Alliance has is receiving consistent data on how systems are being used, as well as receiving data on sort of what uh, areas in the battle space could use improvement. Um, I think, uh, as was kind of talked about earlier, the the idea of sort of a ballistic missile threat um, in a conventional sense over Kiev is a really good sort of example of, all right, we have the Patriot batteries, we can supply them, that can sort of patch that hole in the wall. Mm. Um, and in regards to sort of the JDAM kits, I think what we've seen so far is uh, artillery platforms, precision artillery platforms such as HIMARS have been very effective at sort of disrupting Russian formations. Um, 
so I think sort of the indicator there is that there's either a lack of aerial-borne precision-guided munitions in the Ukrainians' arsenal, or sort of uh, planners at the DoD see sort of an opportunity to expand upon their usage in in what we've seen so far in areas such as Bakhmut. Um, so I think moving forward, we're going to see more of these sort of targeted supply. Um, I'm going to call it a tranche, uh, just as. Um, sort of Western planners are receiving more data on what's going on in the battle space and what technologies could potentially sort of shift it further in Ukraine's favor. Yeah, and and as these technologies continue, I think we're seeing sort of that merge of old and new, especially you know with that USAI aid, the um the the, which is in effect a lot of ammunition for systems that ukraine had day one or that systems that ukraine has captured from russia in a you know fairly significant number at this point looking back at oryx's list um Mm -hmm. but also there is that new fusion of either getting systems that can work with what ukraine has at the moment building ukrainian capabilities especially i'm looking at the humvees the mraps systems like that that have sort of worked really well in making these highly mechanized ukrainian formations uh, that have been able to take advantage of of breakthroughs and really sort of move against the Russians. Um, I I I definitely see that aid and and you know the communications and stuff, the the training, maintenance, and sustainment as sort of that fusion of newer technologies with what Ukraine already had on the field. And then of course there's what Ukraine is doing domestically without you know foreign aid sort of taken into account. The 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 actions they've taken to integrate drones. Um, into what they do. I mean, we just saw, you know, a, a recent video I posted of a, a DJI, uh, what was it, a Matrice R300 RTK, um, which is a highly capable airborne UAV platform, um, uh, which is in service with a Territorial Defense Brigade. Um, so I, I think we're seeing sort of that sensor fusion, and we've also seen a lot of videos of Ukrainian forces, you know, live streaming back information to, to headquarters over over Google Meet, which which is still just an insane thing that they've been able to sort of put together these secure communications methods that are somewhat janky but work. And ultimately, it's a good learning curve for the US and, and for NATO as well, because to a certain extent, when, when we think of the US and NATO and, and, and military operations, it's always very, very high-end uh, kit, very high-end technology. Um, and particularly where, obviously, we've spent most of the last 20 years dealing with very, very low-end sort of technology enemies in the likes of Afghanistan and Iraq fighting terrorism. It's interesting for the Americans, I think, and for NATO as a whole to look at the way Ukraine sort of not being a low-end fighter, but at the same time not being sort of on a par with the US and the rest of NATO, is able to take these technologies and use them in a way that perhaps we've not seen before. Yeah, to yeah. Do- again how to fight in a peer-to-peer conflict we've seen that like early when the war started with all the announcements from europe oh other land war we have to prepare our armies for that and at least here in germany there was a lot of talk but nothing really came of it so we also have to think are these lessons incorporated later into our military structure 
will the lessons be learned? You know, that is not that helpful. Yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, there are huge lessons to be learned, of course, on integration of drone assets, sort of how fires cap or how traditional capabilities have changed when integrated with sort of a new layer of ISR capabilities when, when it comes to drones. That's, that's a huge thing that I think is going to be a takeaway of this conflict. Um, but I, I think there are also lessons like conventional mechanized warfare is a bit more complex. Um, and and requires a heck of a lot of investment to actually make make it work. Um, what the U.S. did in Iraq was, frankly, unparalleled um, in in a demonstration of capabilities, and that Russia couldn't even you know slightly replicate it in their own backyard. Um, I think that's that's definitely a, a, a an element of this as well. I think that's that's absolutely correct. And what we've seen is sort of a, a reassertion of uh, American and other sort of Western defense planners sort of thoughts on logistics, like in order to recreate in Iraq, either, you know, the first or the second one, you need to have a consistent, you know, sort of unfettered supply line going towards your, your units on the ground or towards your aerial assets. And to this day, we haven't seen, you know, the VKS being able to establish air dominance, let alone air superiority. Um, massive, massive shocker, clinically underfunding your Air Force assets and not giving, you know, your pilots the requisite training and your equipment, the, the required maintenance hurts your ability to conduct strike operations and, and other operations against enemy forces. Well, we talk a lot about, you know, how the Ukrainians have been able to sort of, um, you know, put together sort of solutions outside of the, uh, the conventional mindset in regards to like jury rigging various arms or finding workarounds for secure communications and everything like that. You know, I, th I think one of the uh, least desirable jobs right now in the world would be a Russian aircraft mechanic trying to figure out how to replace, you know, extremely precise subsystems into a plane that if it doesn't have that system working, it will go into the ground. I mean, I mean, at this point, either you probably have less and less planes to repair as time goes on, especially especially those uh, SU-34 mechanics. They're they're probably, you know, I mean, what what percentage of of SU-34s has Russia lost so far of their available fleet? Let me let me just pull up Oryx's list real quick here. I mean, Russia has like 120 SU-34s. It was um, <laughs> from last month. It was um ten percent of the fleet. Yeah, so they have lost seventeen. No, no correction. Probably somewhere between seventeen to twenty SU thirty fours. Oh yeah, so ten percent of their fleet, which yeah. is around one hundred. So it's very limited. <laughs> yeah, and 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 well, when you think about it, what percentage you know are combat capable at any one time? Like probably you know. Probably not maybe, even thirty percent, I'd say. Given yeah, and and so that's 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 maybe you have you know fifty say aircraft that are actually available at any one time, and you've lost twenty of the most available aircraft because those were the ones that were flying combat missions. Mm. And so then when when you think about that, and you and you think about sort of they're losing the most you know capable aircraft in their inventory because those are the aircraft that they're sending over ukraine um 
you know, it's it's definitely a huge impact on their capabilities to construct to conduct air warfare in other places. Um, and when you look at the units that are losing aircraft, these are units that have the most, you know, experience in Syria um, and and which which has been a training ground for for Russian systems. Hmm. Um, I don't think as much the Air Force. We saw a lot of work on the caliber in Syria, it developing that and, and sort of improving it. But um, I really don't think that we've we've seen much uh, work done on on their strike capabilities i mean we saw su-34 is dropping dumb bombs over syria and, and lo and behold over ukraine they they try to hot they try to do high altitude dumb bombing and they they get shot down they try to do low altitude dumb bombing and they they get shot down by man pads um and so i think that that's also another big thing is that the russians were not prepared to fight an adversary with an actual existing air defense network yeah and that that it's yeah, and their health totally. as well has suffered massively. I mean, I I can't count the number of videos I've seen now of um, KA fifty twos and 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 Heinz being shot down by, as you say, man pads, um, or even just by the Russians themselves. Um, the amount of friendly fire against Russian aircraft has been um, quite alarming, really. Well, in fairness, we also saw friendly fire against Ukrainian assets. Um, granted, the Ukrainians had less losses in sort of that department because they were just conducting less sorties or fewer sorties Ooh. against against Russian forces. Um, but I, I do think that is sort of a continuing element of this, of, you know, air warfare when you don't have stuff like IFF, um, when, when you don't have these issues already worked out, which the U.S. had and ran into back in, you know, the first Gulf War, of sort of how to handle that, you know, controlling of the air battle space um russia just hasn't had the opportunity to face that because before ukraine pretty much all their enemies had had no air superior actually had, had no no air assets to speak of and, and very limited surface to air assets and, and so i think now that russia sort of rushed into this headlong um they're they're learning a lot of these lessons the the really hard way um I think that that also we can connect to China as well. China really hasn't had that chance to uh, experiment against or, or, or actually have a conflict situation where they've tested these things out. So um, to add to, uh, to, the, uh, to share to something, uh, uh, about the losses of equipment, like the SU-34s, the K-52s, it's also indicative that um, Russia has been playing them on what they were intended to do. So, uh, to to add context, the SL-34s were considered as frontline bombers. So basically, you're the equivalent of the F-11, uh, F-111 aardvarks in the West, basically. So, or the tornado, uh, tornado in Europe. So basically, frontline um, ground pounders dropping bombs, cluster munitions, and the like. So they were basically intended to do a lot of damage at the front line so basically yeah a frontline bomber so their losses is basically just that due to bombing at the front lines just that they were bombing at the front lines without any other air support either from ground or from air they literally are just going headlong bombing like dumb bombs or doing rough sea which uh 
uh, to put it in other context, Russian Shiad um, doctrine is well rough because in the Soviet days it's also a bit rough and by historical chance there were a lot of um were well, speaking of um IFFs friendly fire back in the Soviet days like in strategic exercises like you see this in various uh propaganda movies you've seen it before like massive formations and the like the Soviet air air forces expected to have at least around 40 to 50 percent attrition rate from their friendly forces alone because the ground forces and the air force don't have enough um, what they call this experience working together they're basically operating on uh, isolated from each other no ground communication no um coordinated attacks it's really hard back then so Back in the Soviet days, and until now, it's st- they are still suffering from miscommunication. Uh, the branch not talking to each other to avoid friendly fire, and we've seen many friendly fire. And also the misuse of equipment. So, for example, the KA-52s were supposed to be um, designed primarily for recon, but due to the losses of many attack helicopters like the Mi-28s, some MI-24, some retrofitted MI-8 hips, they were uh, forced to be attack helicopters and they suffered greatly. So yeah, it's a mix and match of problems that they have that they couldn't sustain from uh, from long, literally, what they call this, chronic issues dating back from the Soviet period, like miscommunications, from um, misuse of the equipment, to basically, well, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but sharing competence. That's it. Yeah. Well, also there's 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 incompetence, and then there's chronic underfunding and and limitations to training and capabilities that that come from those issues. And when you have you know a large portion of your military budget just being siphoned away through corruption, it it certainly doesn't help. Um. Yeah, when you look at the funding structure of the Russian Armed Forces, there's only um you could only point to two branches that gets proper funding. Or wait, three. Wait, two or yeah, probably three. Definitely not point. the Navy. Yeah, wait. The Navy submarine force gets a lot of funding. Yeah. There was um there's a lot of meme like jokes that have been running around that uh due to sanctions the Russian Navy might be downgraded to from a blue water navy to a brown water navy so a literal combat force but some people might say uh some people in probably in the russian uh, social media and in various uh, veteran forums they say that uh the government will sacrifice the surface fleet long before they would cut budget to the submarine fleet because um in the grand scheme of things, the Russian Navy is basically a submarine fleet first or rather than a surface fleet first compared to, let's say, the U.S., where they have their... That means they will be carriers, destroyers, cruisers. The Russian Navy is basically submarines, submarines, and submarines. Like, yeah, I mean, are... going, going back to the Soviet Navy, if you looked at, you know, what first... What Soviet naval aviation was, 
Um, yeah. The first Soviet carriers were mainly meant to be at the core of anti-submarine battle Marine. groups that would work with submarines. And they were never called yes. aircraft carriers either. They were always aircraft carrying cruisers or or similar sort of designations that to the vast majority of Western countries sounded rather odd. Yeah, because uh, if you even look at it now, the air wings of those um, Kiev-class quote-unquote aircraft carriers are basically um, KA-25s, KA-27s, anti-submarine helicopters. They basically outnumber the amount of um, VTOL aircraft they are equipped with, like 5 to 1 usually. So you have like 40 anti-submarine helicopters to just 10 VTOL aircraft because the VTOL aircraft were just for fleet uh, area air defense, basically. So their primary mission was mainly for hunting submarines because they knew back then that well, submarines are the undisputed king of the basically the naval warfare. You can they can hide, they could sink you without warning, and they could strike from land. So it's basically uh, a a good investment for them, but then again it's one of the branches that hasn't been siphoned off with budget. The other one would be the well the strategic forces. That's it. The land ballistic missiles. The Air Force, they got siphoned off because um, when I'm pretty sure this might be long, but when Serdyukov was kicked out, uh, Defense Minister Serdyukov, which was the per, which was the Secretary, uh, Minister of Defense that uh, spearheaded the buy from Europe uh, spree from Russia where they bought um, the Mistral LHDs from France. Um, thermal equipment from sales, um, what they call this, uh, the Iveco armored carrying, uh, armored personnel. Yeah, the LMB, from, yeah. Yeah. It was spearheaded by Sergikov because he knew, plus Sergikov was a businessman first, not a military man. So Sergikov knew that the Russian military industrial complex is bloated with corruption with inefficiencies, with lacks of connections where your budget goes off somewhere in the black hole. So there's, uh, you can see the um, influences when it comes to equipment, like the Air Force heavily relied on um, sales um, inertial navigation systems, multifunction displays, even helmet-mounted helmet um, queuing systems have, been, have some parts of it from European equipment. The other would be radars, like ship radars, for example, have been experiencing uh, supply issues, quote-unquote supply issues, due to the sanctions because apparently some of the modules have been sourced from European countries. And that was started during his term as um, Secretary of Defense or Minister of Defense. But when he was unseated and was replaced by Shoigu, yeah, the corruption just basically resumed we have less training for the Air Force, a stagnating modernization program of Cold War bombers and Cold War era aircrafts with the Air Force. You have um, projects that are supposed to be revolutionary, like the T-14 that have been experiencing, experiencing slowdowns. And for the Navy, it's um, the reintroduction of ghost companies where they bid they bid on naval projects and somehow they never deliver so 
Wait, yeah, so, but... so the 50 different new Russian carrier designs over the past 10 years have all been <laughs> fake? So I'm going to uh, I'm going to explain that too. So in the Russian metal industrial complex, the naval side, that is, there's one company that has been prevalent in making really, really weird um shipyard designs, and that is um Krylov State Research Center. So you might uh Krylov State Research Center is basically a, a hydrographic um research center where their main purpose is to study or um sim uh what they call this uh test hull designs. Like key po- keyword is hull designs, not above the water ship design. So if you see weird carrier uh carrier or ship designs like the leader class nuclear cruisers, those really really weird pagoda style carriers there's our chances that it's from them and the the military and even the government ignores them because they are first and foremost a hull uh what's called this a hull experiment agency so they only test experimental hulls current hull designs future ship hull designs they're just basically hydrographics they only test hulls. They're not supposed to design superstructures, ship systems, but you know they insisted on it, and it garnered a lot of media attention. Like, oh look, um, new Russian carrier designs. When yeah, it was uh, it was all a fluke. It was all fake because even the what call this the naval command just um shies away when they see such weird weird renders. So yeah, they are fake, and they are also a butt of joke in the, both in the internal Russian naval um, uh, enthusiasts, uh, defense enthusiasts. It's a butt of jokes for them because it's unfeasible. Plus, the current structure, even now, even before the war, is not conducive to have any carrier battle groups. It's not supportive. It's not um. What I call this, it's not suitable in short. It's not suitable for a carrier. They're mostly for submarine support, some limited travel to the sea. So carriers is not a good fit for them. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I think that one of the elements that, that has proven to be problematic with Russia is the inability to sort of project power. Um, in without you know solid basing and and cooperation from a host country, um, even even projecting power slightly outside of their borders into Ukraine has been a difficult operation. Um, after the Ukrainian sinking of the Moskva in the Black Sea, I I think we saw also a Russian pullback with their naval assets as well, and and they're now mostly limited to conducting caliber cruise missile strikes. Um, which they 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 could be doing from the Caspian Sea anyway, um, so I I definitely think that that you know the 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 ingrained corruption has really hurt that Russian capability to actually conduct warfare. Like period, end of story. Like it's it's just it, it has been taken back to a point where they are not not on par with Ukraine per se, but they aren't able to amass enough offensive power to overcome existing Ukrainian defenses. 
um, after, of course, you know, the initial phase of the, the conflict. Yeah, that's true. Due to the, um, uh, prior to the war itself, some people literally, uh, like a lot, ignored, even me also, was ignored the, a lot, uh, ignored the shortcomings that was mentioned by a lot of um, free press in Russia when it comes to uh, deficiencies, when it comes to training, equipment supplies, um, military contracts, like even for communications, um, part supply. We somehow overlooked it because, you know, sheer modernization, sheer lots of manpower being transported near the border. But prior to that, a lot of people, even me included, uh, ignored the fact that um, the entire Russian army is um, literally walking on a suspension bridge that is full of holes at this point because uh, the industrial corruption, the bloat that was being created, like every year there's a lot of um, new companies creating new supposedly products, but just a rehash of Soviet era designs. I'm looking at you, Panzer. I know you. So it's basically that plus inefficient training plus the officer uh, the officer corps basically um uh what do you call this not knowing how to fight because they just rushed in so yeah that's going to be their that's going to be one of the highlight uh, one of the highlights of this war when it will end is that the, uh, a lot of people overlooked the problems due to the what they call this due to the many um new technologies that they are showing off the new capabilities that we were blinded to the fact that some of the deficiencies have been um overlooked and a lot of um respected analysts have also or in my observation overlooked that they have still have um growing issues going into the war and until now. I mean, I, I definitely think that is a, a huge problem that the Russians have faced. Um, just the, the ongoing issues. I, a lot of us may have ignored, or I think there was the assumption that, you know, until, or, or, or at least the idea that until it faced contact, we had no idea how the Russian military would fail, would fare. Um, I there there is always the temptation, and I think all of us, or I think a lot of people, fell into it of just looking at the numbers on paper and just looking at what assets Russia had available, you know, what capabilities they had, just the Russian Air Force alone, the Russian missile forces, the Russian Navy, what they had massed in the Black Sea at the same time, and I think there was this idea that you know even if there was a certain amount of corruption, Russia still had all these assets in play. Um, and I, I, I don't think we really realized how deep the sort of dysfunction within the Russian military was and, and how badly positioned they were to face any type of resistance. I would agree with you too. And I remember like back in February, uh, just before the war started, I remember discussing all the uh, buildup and stuff with an acquaintance of mine who worked in the uh, Russian defense. Uh, market and he said like man you have to look the Russian army 
he, he was, I think he served formerly in there was with the conscription stuff. And he, he told me, really, look, it's not going well for them. The army is not well equipped. They are not there. They, they can't fight a war. Uh, but yeah, was stranger before that, before that. It really looked more impressive in media before from what we've seen also from what a lot of the analysts uh, who focus on Russia said and wrote before that. So it, it was a quite interesting like first couple of weeks to see what you expected to happen to what really happened. And that was a significant uh, difference, at least for me. Yeah. And, and I, again, I think there were a lot of competing opinions on what would happen. Um, I don't I don't think there were many people who said or or at least would have thought that this, you know, what it what actually happened in reality was a likely outcome. Um I definitely think this has been surprising um uh to a certain degree. And uh I honestly wonder if you will uh see the start of negotiations soon between Ukraine and Russia to to end this war, of course. Because um, I've, I've read a lot of people, even in the US, uh, started slowly talking about eventual uh, peace talks. And uh, maybe it's yet too early, but uh, I wonder if it will take so long yet, or I wonder how it, how it, how it will go in the few months. So... But uh, I, I, honestly, with all this aid sent now to Ukraine, I highly doubt uh, that they will start negotiating now. I mean, it looks like the Ukrainians will continue to have the capability to regain more territory um, as time goes on. And I, I don't really see any motivation within the Ukrainian government to cede territory that they have the capability to retake. Um, yeah, and also there's a the the like what will happen to crimea like uh will they try to uh took it back or will they like leave it to russia or this is i think this is one of the main point for the discussion but uh, uh yeah I don't, I, I don't think they'll have the capability to retake crimea at any point in the near future um I, I do think they, they obviously have the ability to retake territory in Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast and uh and also in the south of the country as well. Um on the on the east bank of the Dnipro. I, I think they, they definitely have that that capability and the drive to do it as well. Um especially as uh as Russian forces continue to be attrited um and, and, and face again a, a, a the prospect of, of sitting in Ukraine for, for an entire winter with no real mechanism for rotation. I mean, some Russians have been constantly fighting now for almost a year um, without any realistic chance of rotation, whereas Ukrainian forces have at least had some level of, of time to rest and refit between various offensives and, and, and with the ability or capabilities to rotate out reserve units um, to replace regular units at the front and allow them to at least re-equip and train. Maybe Russia will have that with mobilization, but I, I don't think they're there yet. Um, 
plus with mob with such a large mobilization and such a need like an instant need for manpower yeah you're going to encounter quality issues and the quality of training is already questionable like we have seen that but a washed mobile uh, even a mobile a proper mobilization would take place the need of enough manpower in the front would basically um uh throw the proper modernization into the bin because they would just um send the people near the front get quick training not the proper training just quick and just send out to the front like yeah i think they're there are definitely a lot of questions about the efficacy of the Russian mobilization and how they can actually generate new units when, um, yes, yeah, surprise, surprise, all the NCOs who were going to be part of those new units and, and all the, the junior officers who, who could have been part of those units are, are either already in existing units in Ukraine or have been uh, 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 casualties in Ukraine or, or have been killed in action, wounded in action. Um, and so I, I think that those new Russian units are going to be very headless and so may not have the capabilities to actually conduct offensive operations. They, they may be literally just told, you know, sit in this trench and shoot at any Ukrainians who come at you, you know, and, and they, they will most likely be just used as to, to fill, to fill bodies in, in various formations as well. And so I think that that's going to further decrease the Russian capabilities to actually conduct operations. Considering that the most of the Russians in the front, like um, especially in the Crimean area, they're like making lots of um, reinforced positions. Yeah, that's basically one of the possible ways those new mobilized forces are going to go. More on the defensive line where they're just gonna hit their point a machine gun at an open field and when they and when they see something that is not them or not not friendly they could just shoot that's basically um in my honest opinion that's how i surmise the new mobilization sure there might be skilled ones like at the back like logistics medical like like that you could train that properly but when it comes to fighting yeah you're going to have very very limited um ways it comes to training especially when all of the experienced ones are either captured dead or in the front lines and are busy so they basically are stuck in a hard place when it comes to properly training them um, what i heard about the russian mobilization is that it's basically split into like two parts one is was directly sent to the front as we have seen like in Kharkiv and Luhansk, where people who were mobilized like a couple of days before were thrown to the front and were killed or captured by Ukraine. But that also another part is apparently being trained somewhere. But there's again the question who is training them as we've seen a couple of months earlier that a lot of the training divisions and training units have been sent to Ukraine. So there is apparently someone staying a, a couple hundred, not a couple thousand, maybe 50, 60, 100. I don't know. I don't have much insight into the numbers, but there's some staying back training. But 
also that how how will the quality be? I don't think it will be good, but it may be better than the ones thrown just at the lines in August. But also, I don't think it will be enough for like a offensive offensive university. And so I guess the question is ultimately. As you say, Russia is effectively running out of steam and, and has been for some time now. And I suppose the, the, the key question will be, how long do they realistically have to come to the table to negotiate before they run out completely and Ukraine potentially can turn around and just steamroll them back across the border? I, I don't think it's running out of steam so much as losing the ability or, or losing capabilities in certain areas um, where they can still sit around and defend areas and, and filling rear areas with bodies is certainly going to help prevent some Ukrainian breakthroughs. Um, I, I, I do think, though, that their capability to actually conduct offensive operations um, may be diminished. Or, or may continue to be diminished. Right now, they're probably at their lowest. They may be able to fill out units with extra soldiers, but it's not going to be a replacement for the ones that they've already lost. Yeah, the combat, um, the combat effectiveness when it comes to um offensive, like even minor ones, minor they could do. Like within local setting, they could do some limited, I mean, very limited um, offensive operations. But when it's an entire front, or an entire region when you try to conduct an, a proper offensive operation, they're basically um, on the teething edge of combat ineffective for any sort of major offensive operations. Major defensive operations, they could do because um, you could just refill it, uh, you could just fill it with um, fresh mobilized troops to basically defend uh, a location. But offensive ones is going to be hard. And considering the outlook of the war right now, they're basically more on the defensive, which they might sustain for longer. But unless the Russian command starts to have any more um, ideas of grandiose offensives, yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, no offensives, no major offensives will be um, being conducted when you're frontline manpower is very very low also if you compare to the ukrainian regeneration of manpower especially with the help from nato countries specifically from the uk it seems to have been much much better carried out uh, than with russia of course it is less but the quality at least what it appears to me as an outside observer it definitely appears to be better. So if you compare it just the regeneration of units from the Russian side or from the Ukrainian side, I think Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine is definitely better off there. So also in the future, as the conflict will probably draw on for quite some time, it does seem that Ukraine definitely has an edge with uh, replacing and regenerating manpower. I think it helps. Um counter to some Russian conspiracies um, that there aren't NATO training officers in Ukraine, but they're actually taking the time to take Ukrainian forces out of Ukraine, train them in NATO countries, and then send them back. Um, which I, I, I do think is important um, for the Ukrainian force generation structure. Um, 
And even during this war, the Ukrainians have also invented, invested. Their NCO and officer schools are still running. They are still training new NCOs and officers to both replace existing losses and help with the generation of new units, um, which is extremely important to what they're doing. I don't think the Russians are doing the same thing right now. I think they mobilized the, at least officer schools from what I heard and just uh, took all the ones in training and put them in charge enough into uh, enough units and just yeah, well, they're doing they're doing arguably more harm to their officer corps than than what already is happening. It's that common Russian situation of doing nothing would have been better. Yeah, yeah for like sure. That. But I think it also shows sort of the Russian desperation for or need so far for officers or NCOs, right? Like you don't you don't gut your own sort of officer academies unless you absolutely need to. Um, otherwise, you're setting yourself up for even further failure, you know, one, two, three years down the line. Um and so I think the the big things to look at in regards to the Russians' abilities to wage sort of offensives are going to be uh, equipment drain and then knowledge drain or brain drain, so to speak. Um, yeah, we're already seeing less and less Russian NCOs. We're seeing you know less and less Russian units that are properly equipped, even more so than we saw at the beginning of the war. And I think you know one of the the myths about the Russian armed forces before the war, again, uh, like technical brought up, was that a lot of folks were kind of just looking at numbers. They were looking at you know, I remember in in previous conversations about Russia, everyone would always sort of point to sort of their massive tank reserves, right, and that you know they could sustain their armored divisions or just form new armored divisions out of thin air just because of the sheer amount of tanks they had in storage. Um, not really talking about, you know, where are these depots? How often are they being checked on? You know, how much of this equipment has been sold to any sort of um, uh, other conflict around the world by folks like, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Victor Boot lately, but that was sort of his uh, his game was going into these sort of Soviet depots, taking, you know, a couple of vehicles from each one and then selling them on the uh, on the market. Um, so I think the the question moving forward is, are we going to continue to see a depreciation of the Russian industrial base? And looking at that, are we going to start seeing attrition coming from lack of proper kit getting worse and worse? Yeah, and, and you know, as I, I think the other problem was that Russian ready reserves were um, in kind of a terrible state also due to corruption. Um and so they've had to dive deeper. Somehow, apparently, the T-62s were, were the most ready, maybe because they were the hardest to actually loot from. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting. I think I recall that back in, I think it was um, Vostok, the, where the Chinese, uh, the strategic exercise where the Chinese were also a part of. So yeah, Vostok, it's called the East, East, uh, East Strategic Exercise Vostok. I recall that uh, I think a few years ago, like 2018, 2019, where they tried to, uh, they included a lot of um, T-72As, T-62s in the exercise to see how quickly they could um, reinstate those older equipment from um, hot storage. So and in my parlance, hot storage is basically ready storage that they could just 
um, prepare, uh, train, and send it to the front lines. Well, their cold storage is, well, ironically cold. It's literally sitting in the tundra in Siberia somewhere. It's literally cold storage where um, I think they're trying to dig up a lot of cold storage vehicles right now because a lot of the T-62s that have, we have, that, uh, have been appearing in the front lines have telltale signs that they were coming from cold storage and they just got uh, sent to um, what they call this army formations that specialized in vehicle reconditioning to basically put as little of a job as possible to making them combat capable so basically doing the least work to make them like work to go them into the front line so yeah the ready reserves are already bad, like due to corruption. Plus, they already are spent. Now they're probably digging to their cold reserves. And when I mean cold, I mean they're stalled. They are constantly being battered with ice or with heavy winter conditions. So yeah, cold storage, literally cold storage. Um. Yeah, I. <sighs> And we'll we'll see how it uh how they manage to regenerate stuff, um from cold storage. I I think that the various rumors about you know people basically just looting equipment from tanks in cold storage might have been correct. Um, I I I believe at this point that that most of again mo- those modernized vehicles just don't exist in cold storage or even hot storage. Um. And so we're probably just going to see, you know, a lot of these parts tanks eventually make their way to the front. Um, but uh, it, it's that capa- it's that degradation of capabilities. Um, you know, if they're missing important equipment, you know, night vision sites or or some of them that may have had thermal sites, though, almost certainly don't anymore. Um, if they don't have access to that equipment, then they're going to be fairly combat ineffective. Unless there, it's in certain circumstances. Speaking of um, thermal equipment for vehicles, um, we might you might have seen some of the tanks that are equipped with sails, like um, optics, right, on tanks. Like it was prevalent in probably June, July, or August, where we see videos of um, BMPs, BMDs, T seventy two B trees. T80 BVMs where they have like French equipment on them. I think it was fairly common, but uh, we might see like uh, reconditioned, like as this is on the same topic of regenerating units. Now that they lost uh, access to Western or European equipment, they might have to dig, uh, they might have to utilize their own homegrown. Um, solutions now. Ah, that's not to, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give a quick breather. They tried to make um indigenous solutions to their thermal equipment. Like they made, uh, they assembled them, like they created them. But the major component of thermal cameras, like the thermal sensitive sensors, are being sourced somewhere else. Those countries are either South Korea or China. Now they have achieved same quote unquote fidel resolution fidelity as um ones that were installed in the 
newer tanks that were equipped with French um, optics, but they are just very, very limited and also are prone to um, well, reliability issues. They just prefer French for uh, for their optics that they won't settle for probably um, indigenous ones that hasn't reached the standards of the French ones. So, yeah, we might see quote unquote reconditioned vest, uh, reconditioned tanks, uh, BMPs that have supposedly new optics that just basically have been got uh, uh, put together by a parts bin from um, experimental equipment or just half big ones. We might see them sooner rather than well later. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure how willing China is to help out at this point, especially with Russia's uh, nuclear saber rattling. I think they may have toned that down recently because of Chinese influences. Um, yeah. Uh, just when because you, that kind of scared the Chinese. When you look at uh, the semiconductor, uh, the military semiconductor side, like the chips, there have <laughs> been an increase of shipment of um, Chinese, uh, in Chinese-made chips, like semiconductors. But there are also news that the um, what they call this defect rate has gone up since the war started. Like prior to the war, it was like six or seven percent defect rate per shipment. Now it's around forty percent. So yeah, the the Russians are basically buying a lot, like rapid uh uh buying a lot of um chips that they want now for their equipment, like for missiles, for guidance systems and such. But because it's China, they might have been um, sneaking in a lot of um, defectives that they want to sell off. And apparently, and unfortunately, Russia is the end destination for those quote-unquote defective products they want to sell off. It's the, instead of, you know, the Russian model of scamming your own countrymen, it's the... uh... Chinese model of scamming someone else. Yeah. <laughs> Which objectively, hey, works a lot better in, in this environment. Yeah. Well, a lot of the modern Russian equipment are basically just rebrands. If, uh, if, if we have to simplify it, it's just rebrands or just assembled in Russia, but the components are sourced somewhere else. Yes. Like they're queens on... Uh, the soldiers, like their combat management software in their uh, in their soldiers, like their strelets, where some have been sourced from Laika. <laughs> I have seen a few that were branded as Russian, but when you rip the sticker from behind, it was branded as Laika. Wow, a German company! Like, who would have thought? Like, it's a it's a, an eye opener for everyone that not of not a lot of Russia's um new tech is new. Sometimes they're just a few generations behind and mainly sourced from somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, it was like the Russian robot combat dog that was really just a uh, Chinese one bought from AliExpress with what was in in effect a sock thrown over it. Uh, a kit bash, basically. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll let. I'll let. I'll. I'll. I'll... John has been harassing me about ending this at some I'm point not reasonable. Harassing you. 
<laughs> it's a message. I can consider it harassment while I'm talking, John. <laughs> so I, I think I'll let you handle the wrap up. Yeah. Um, gents, it's been a pleasure having you all on. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm hoping some of you will be up for joining us again uh, next season uh, in 2023. And um, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap for the OSINT Bunker podcast for 2022. Um Thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you very much for your continued support. Um, we are fast approaching three and a half million downloads worldwide, um, and we look forward to bringing you season five um, in the new year. Um, so, guys, thank you very much for joining us this evening. And uh, technical cue the outro music. <laughs>